The following is message number five of a Southeast Blending Conference held in Jacksonville, Florida on September the 3rd of 2006. The title of the message is The Three Aspects of the Lord's Recovery, Part 2, The God-Man Life. The speaker is Brother Ron Kangas. As we come to the second aspect of the Lord's Recovery, The God-Man Life. I would uh, urge you and encourage you to have the hearing of faith that there is an enemy, as we were reminded recently, there is an enemy, and he is a liar. And he may whisper lies to you, saying, the God-man life, you, you can't do that. The God-man living, that's too high for you. This is a lie. There's an important principle in the book of Hebrews that is, the word, when it comes, should be mixed with faith. We should guard ourselves from a heart of unbelief, an evil heart of unbelief, and simply receive the word in faith and mix it with faith perhaps simply by inwardly saying, Amen. 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 We will see when we come to the outline in who knows when, (laughs) that the Lord is recovering a certain kind of life. The Lord is not only recovering truths, and practices, and experiences. He is recovering the God-man life. The Lord cannot have the body of Christ unless a number of his believers are growing in life to be sons of God, led by the Spirit, and learn to live a God-man life. One reason I fully believe that this is for us is that the Lord took the worst sinner, Saul of Tarsus, that's how he referred to himself, the chief sinner who persecuted the church of God to death. And the Lord showed mercy to him and made him a pattern to all those who would believe. That is Paul's word in 1 Timothy 1.16. If we had only the record of the Lord Jesus as the God-man, living a God-man life, we might be tempted to say things like, well, he could do it because he's God in the Godhead. 
And he could do it because he had no element of sin in him. But surely no one else. So the Lord took a great sinner, showed mercy to him, and trained him in living a God-man life as a pattern to us who had the same kind of sinful beginning, that this is possible, actually that this is normal. But I feel it's necessary in the Lord to present a view to you before we come to the outline so that we will have some appreciation of the uniqueness of the living of the Lord Jesus on earth. The uniqueness of his God-man life. And then hopefully the Spirit will impress us that the first God-man is now the life-giving Spirit in our spirit. And he said before his death and resurrection in John 14, 19, Because I live, you also shall live. Because I live, you also shall live. Well, this word is applied experientially to Christ in his resurrection, living in us, because he lives. That's Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. Because he lives, we also shall live. So based upon the complete revelation of the scriptures, especially of its ultimate consummation, I can assure you that eventually all the believers will eventually live as God-men. Now let me begin this way. When God created humankind, he created something very good. And he even said, very good. God will not and cannot create something evil. What God creates is good. And the natural created human life has in it the law of doing good. That's part of being a human created by God. And you see this in children along with the other things you see in little children that are from another source. That they spontaneously want to do good things and they can be kind and they can be tender. I know there's the other side. That's the sin in them. But in Romans 7, Paul refers to the law of good in his mind. That the, the human life was created good. The law, the spontaneous function of the human life, is to do good. 
to be kind, to be loving. We're created in the image of God. However, there's no such thing as a person on the earth who has a pure, God-created human life. Because when the fall took place, through man's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, signifying Satan, the element of Satan was injected into the human being and became sin in the flesh. The spirit was deadened. The soul became the self. And man began to live independently of God according to his knowledge of good and evil. So this is everywhere in human culture, the good guys versus the bad guys, the, this entity versus the dark entity. And the common human concept is that we should be good, we should be better, we should improve. And out of the combination of our God-created human life with its law of good and the knowledge of good and evil, out of that come all the teachings and systems of ethics and morality and behavior which human beings need if there is to be any order on the earth. And little children cannot be taught to live as God-men. They're not God-men yet. They need to be raised under the law and taught right from wrong and be trained in their conscience until faith comes and they're born of God. So all over the earth, in every culture, there is some concept of what is an ethical living. What is legal? What is proper? And even a moral living. What is the proper standard of morality? So to some extent... Even though there is sin in the flesh, human beings can have some degree of ethics. Not everyone cheats on their income tax. Not everyone shoplifts. A few days ago, I was in Northern Ireland with some brothers. And we got to a certain place and a brother said, I'm sorry to say... I left my camera at this other place. And those of us that were Americans, we said, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. And one brother, and he was not boasting, he is, according to the flesh, Irish. He said, no, it's different here. Uh, you'll, you'll see that someone will find it and they'll turn it in. And so... Some went back 
to get it, to make the story short, a lady came hurrying out of the booth saying this camera was turned in and someone found it where you were and they brought it here. That's good. Isn't that good? Isn't it better than someone saying finders, keepers, losers, weepers? <laughs> I hope you young people don't learn something new. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Uh, isn't that good? I'm not saying the Irish are better than Americans. I went to an area called Donnybrook. They, they don't call, use the word Donnybrook for nothing. But that's good, isn't it? And human beings are capable of that. It happens all the time. And many suppose that after they become Christians, they should expend a lot of effort to improve their human living. Oh, before I was proud. I knew I was proud. But now I'll be humble. Before I was saved, I was kind of rough and insensitive. Now I'll be kind and tender and compassionate. And they try very hard by their will to overcome the negative things in them, and improve. And the whole concept is, this is what Christians should be. So let us say that generally speaking, this is an accurate picture of the prevailing situation. So the unbelievers, the best of them, who have some conscience, they pay some attention to the element of good in them and try to do good more than to do evil. Then the believers, they continue in the same principle in living the Christian life, trying so hard to be like Christ, to imitate Christ, to ask what would Jesus do? So this is our situation. But one day, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. His name was called Jesus, Jehovah the Savior. And men named him Emmanuel, God with us. We need to be impressed that his person and living were unique. We actually have no words in our culture fully to describe it. We don't have the language. Here is a person who is a genuine human being. He really is a man. And we know he lived in a large family because the scripture mentions the names of his four brothers and refers to sisters. So that's at least two sisters and it seems there are always more females than males, so I don't know. 
So there were at least seven children in the family. He was the oldest. He was born in poverty because his parents could only offer pigeons for the offering. His father was his earthly father, so-called, a parent father, was a carpenter. He became a carpenter. He was God, the complete God, who became a man, a perfect man. Hence, he's the God-man. Divinity and humanity are mingled together in him without confusion to be this wonderful person. Thus, in his person, there was no one like him ever in the whole universe. There was just God with deity, then God's creation, at the top of which was humanity. Now there is a person who is a God-man. And he lived in a way that no one had ever lived before. And eventually, all you could say about him is wonderful. His name is wonderful. So how did he live? If you read chapters like John 5 and 7 and 8, and 5 through 8, you will see that he lived like this. He denied his natural human life all the time. He set it aside. You may wonder, why did he have to do that? He had no sin. Ah, this is precisely the point. He had God in him. If he had lived his perfect human life, he would have only expressed a perfect human being. There would have been no manifestation of God in his living. He denied his created human life because as a man, he was a creature, because man is a creature. He denied it because it was human, not because it was bad. Then he took the Father's life as his life, and he lived the life of the Father in his humanity. And the divine attributes, which are in the divine life, were expressed through Jesus' human virtues. So you see a manifold expression of God in his glorious divinity in this unassuming human being, this unattractive carpenter from Galilee. The Lord said things like this. 
I can do nothing from myself. I do nothing from myself. I do not speak my own word. What I hear from the Father, that is what I speak. My teaching is not mine. I did not come in my own name. I came in the Father's name. I do not do my own will. I do not carry out my own work. I do not seek my own glory. Eventually, one of the disciples said, Lord, I just have, we just have one request. Show us the Father. And the Lord said, Philip, Philip, what are you asking? He who sees me. Don't you see me? When you see me, you see the Father, because the Father is in me. I live him, I deny myself, I express him. When you see me, you see him. So I'm me, but I live him. When you see me, you see him. Throughout his whole life, this is how he lived. He was above all ethics. Above all morality. He transcended it. He lived by the tree of life. He lived by God as life. He had God in him. But in order to live God the Father that was in him, and in order to manifest God the Father who was in him, he had to set himself aside. Deny himself his will, his intention, his whole life. You just imagine, there was a person, the God-man Jesus, who throughout his life never did anything from himself, by himself, or for himself. He did everything by the Father's life. So, as he is moving about, he becomes the living manifestation of God in the flesh. This is God living in a human being. That was not a man trying to be God-like. He was not imitating the Father. You read John 6:57, the first part of the verse, the Lord said, "As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father." This is the God-man living. Now it's important to see that in the life of the Lord Jesus, he bore the cross, applied the cross his whole life, and then he was crucified. We need to see this 
Because our experience is the reverse. We'll come to this later, I think. We begin by being crucified with Christ. That's an accomplished fact. And then in order to live the God-man life, the reality of this accomplished fact is applied to us through the Spirit, and we live out the Lord. This is to anticipate. So persons like Confucius, who cared much for human virtue and the conscience and a high ethical standard, they're in a different universe from the God-man Jesus. You could look at his living and say, surely he's an ethical person. But that's a pathetic attempt to describe God living in humanity and a human being living out God in his humanity. Some may say he's moral. Of course he was moral. He kept the law. The only person who kept the law of God. Including the commandment Saul of Tarsus could not keep about coveting. He never coveted. He never sinned. He never fell short of God's glory. But if we think this is merely ethical, merely moral, We are in quite a low plane. Even though it's hard for us to grasp and harder for us to speak of it, in our spirit we can have some impression concerning the uniqueness of the living of the God-man Jesus. No wonder the Father would audibly say, This is my beloved Son. I delight in Him. And son in the Bible means the expression of the Father. He is the effulgence of God's glory, the shining out of the Father. And for one brief moment, three of the disciples were taken to be with the Lord to the top of a mountain, and the divinity that was concealed within the Lord Jesus shone forth in his transfiguration. And they got a glimpse of the divine glory that was in the God-man Jesus. So what is the God-man life? The God-man life is a life in which a human being denies through the cross the natural human life and instead of living that human life, lives God. But he lives God in his humanity and through his humanity. 
So such persons, they walk about as normal human beings, apparently ordinary human beings. The spirit, they are not living their human life. They're living the divine life. They're living God as life in their human life. And it's the most beautiful thing there is. The divine glory in human beauty. So I hope that under the clear atmosphere tonight, that something is dawning in your spirit to appreciate, to praise, to adore, to worship, to exalt, to extol the God-man Jesus. Wonderful God-man Jesus. Lord Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. In your person, you are the God-man. The infinite God in a finite man. In your living, you are a human being denying the human life and living God the Father's life in your human life. I would add the criterion of this kind of living is not right and wrong. A God-man does not ask, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? A God-man's only question is, is this God? Is this the life of God? Is this of God? Then I don't need to reason. The principle is the principle of the tree of life. Not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we must go on. Although I would like to dwell here for many hours. Not so much speaking as just beholding. Adoring. Enjoying. Opening to be infused by Him. Lord, we love You. Oh, how I love Him. How I adore Him. My breath, my sunshine. My all in all, the great creator became my savior. And all God's fullness dwells in him. Oh, marvelous. Now I know you are, you, Jesus, the Nazarene, you are the great I am. You are Jehovah. Remember in John 18 when they were arresting him and he said, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus. He said, I am. And when he said, I am, they all fell backward and fell on the ground. I am. Only Jehovah can say, I am. Jesus is, I am. Don't you love him? Don't you adore him? Let's praise Him! 
Praise the Lord. Praise the I am. Jehovah, the self-existing, ever-existing God, became a man named Jesus. And this human being denied his sinless, perfect human life so that he could express God by living God. Okay, that's the God-man life. Now, what is God's intention? God's intention was not merely to send his Son to be the Son of Man, to live such a life on the earth, then have him accomplish redemption and return to heaven, so that we could be saved and then try to imitate the life of Jesus. To try to be like him, to ask, what would he do? God's intention, okay, and this is revolutionary. God's intention is to have a mass reproduction of the first God-man. Yes, praise the Lord. How do we know? All our thinking about this and speaking must be based on the Word of God. Okay? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. In chapter 12, verse 24, this word became flesh, which is God, man, likened himself to a grain of wheat, which would fall into the ground and die and bring forth many grains. The many grains are the multiplication of that original grain. And who are the many grains? We are the many grains. To that desperate seeker, our sister Mary from Magdala, who wanted desperately to see the Lord, he said, go to my brothers. And Hebrews 2 says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Because both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are out of one, the same source. The point is that in his resurrection, the Lord brought forth many brothers that are his duplication in life and nature, but not with his Godhead. So Romans 8.29 says we are being conformed to the image of the firstborn, conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you realize that Jesus, the first God-man, is your brother? He's your big brother. You know, sometimes when little kids get into a fight and the one who's losing... He's desperate. He says, I'm going to get my brother. <laughs> so tonight, 
I'd like to tell the devil who tried to harass me today, I'm calling in my big brother. My big brother destroyed you on the cross. You creep, you snake, you liar, you murderer. Our big brother defeated you. Hallelujah! Way to go, big brother Jesus! Now we are the many grains. We are the many brothers. We are the many abodes in the Father's house. We are the many sheep in the flock. We are the many members of the body of Christ. And guess who lives in us? This God-man Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and also died with other statuses. He was resurrected from the dead physically and spiritually. He has a glorified body of flesh and bones. But he also was transfigured into the spirit. The last Adam became the life-giving spirit. When we believed in him, when we called on him, when we received him, he, as the spirit, came into our spirit. The first God-man, as the life-giving spirit, is one spirit with us. And he's living. What he wants to do is live again. Repeat his God-man life. There's a verse in 1 John 2. I think I can find it. This verse is relevant here. Yes, 1 John 2, 6. He he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Even as he walked. We abide in him. He abides in us. He lived in a certain way. And we live in the same way. Because Jesus is living again. May the veil be rolled away from our eyes. This is Galatians 2.20. I, that old I, the man of good and evil, was crucified with Christ. And I live no longer. It seems that I is gone. But Paul goes on to say, Christ lives in me. There's a me here, that's the new me. Once you were an old me, a me without Christ, now you're a new me. I think sometime, young parents, if they have a little girl, they should name her new me. 
I know it, it sounds Korean, I say that respectfully. Numi Kangas. Anyway, I'll take that as my new name. I am Numi Kangas. <laughs> Not old me Kangas, Numi Kangas. And I'm a brother of Numi Lutz. <laughs> and I enjoy fellowship with Numi Swift. Christ lives in me. May you have the faith to proclaim this. Don't hide behind generalities. There's a time to be very personal. Don't say Christ lives in all the saints. Christ lives in all the believers. Christ lives in all the members. That's true. Maybe the Spirit would lead you to come to the microphone and you terrify the devil by telling him, listen to this, Christ lives in me. And that's all there is on the earth is us sinners to be redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, and justified, and then born of God to become children of God. Now Christ lives in us. But if we stop there, there's still no expression of Christ. He's in us living, but he is covered by the shell of our humanity. So Paul went on to say, the life which I now live. I now live. First he said, I, I don't live. That was the old I. Now this is new I. So that's my middle name. New me, new I, Kangas. <laughs> the new me is the me in whom Christ as the Spirit lives. New I is the person who lives out this Christ who lives in new me. Because he lives, I live. As he lives, I live. As he loves, I love. As he hates, I hate. As he forgives, I forgive. As he prays, I pray. As he speaks, I speak. As he thinks, I think. As he works, I work. As he laughs, I laugh. He lives. I live. Two persons living as one. I live by faith. By faith means... I can't do this. I can't be this. I can't attain to this. I won't even try. Faith means he is and I'm not. He can and I can't. He's able and I'm, I'm not able. I live by faith. I'm giving this message by faith. I live by faith. Yes. And we know from Hebrews the faith is Christ himself infused into us. He's the author and perfecter of faith. By faith we're joined to him. We merge our being with his. And Paul goes on. By faith in him who loved me. We'll see at the very end in my concluding word. That love is very much a part of this. Oh he loved me. He gave himself for me. And now I love him. I give myself to him. 
I live to Him. I pursue Him. I want to merge my being with Him. I love Him. I love Him. I believe in Him. I love Him. He lives in me. I live Him. And it's all by faith. I'm not trying to be better. I'm not trying to fulfill the kingdom requirements. I'm letting a person live in me. And as he lives, I live. Brothers, here's a little practical application. Let's see if you're getting it. In Ephesians 5, there is an apostolic command to us husband brothers to love our wives. Oh, not just love our wives. To love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a command. Okay, it's not advice. It's not marriage counsel. It's apostolic command. Oh, the sisters are rejoicing that I'm on this matter. Okay, I don't blame you for rejoicing. So here's the command. You have to love your wife to the point that you would die for her. If not physically, then psychologically, you would die for her. That's a command. Now let me ask you, husband, brothers, is this easy or difficult? Okay, here's my answer. On the one hand, it is impossible for a man with an ego like this who loves himself supremely, it's impossible for such a selfie person to really love anyone purely and to love his wife, okay, his own wife. I mean, the wife you actually live with, okay? This actual person. Not a dream wife, not a fantasy wife, the wife you live with, her, her, her. You have to love her the way Christ loved unto death. So if we are enlightened, we would say two things. We would say first, it's impossible for my natural human life. But my real point is the next statement. Nothing is easier than loving your wife like this. It's so easy. It's effortless. I have an actual wife. Been married 40 years to this actual wife. And I am commanded to love this actual wife the way Christ loved the church. I call the heavens to witness many times I died for her. I don't say this to draw tears into your eyes and you will say, what a martyr, what a hero. Don't say that. I'm a vain, self-loving, proud person in the flesh. But Christ lives in me. And the Christ who lives in me is the Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now he wants to live again 
And one area in which he wants to live again is family life and married life. And he doesn't want my and our married life to be the same as that of unbelievers. It should be divine and mystical. It should be the great mystery, Christ and the church. So there is an apostolic command, the word of God over me, saying, you must love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If I try by my will, which I will not do anymore, it's impossible. But if I don't try to do something out of myself, And let the Lord live in me. You're the church-loving Christ. You're the wife-loving Christ. You're the soul-life-losing Christ. You're the church-loving Christ. You haven't changed. You are love itself. Your being is love. You live in me. I let you live in me. There's a new me. Church-loving Christ, wife-loving Christ, live in me. So he lives. Then he indicates, now you live, Ron. You live. You live me. Don't try to love your wife. Live me. And she will know. They always know. Mothers and wives, they always know. I've been doomed my whole life. Mother knows, wife knows. Okay, let them know. So sometimes I may say the words, but whether I say the words or not, she knows. If it's the old man, she knows. If it's the God man, she knows. The worst sinner who would break into the saints' houses and drag them before the Sanhedrin and vote to have them killed. That person received mercy and became a pattern of a God-man, indicating if the worst sinners can do it, it, then us mediocre sinners can do it. Just learn of him. Learn the truth. See the vision. Okay, I believe now. I can read through the outline, then give my concluding word, and there will be significant time for you to respond in faith. Receive it in faith. And speak it in faith. Roman 1, the desire of God's heart is that we would gain him in full as life, as the life supply, and as everything in our being. There's a verse in about the middle of 1 Corinthians 15, that I love very much. It speaks of the sun ruling and subduing everything. 
And then the Son delivering the kingdom to the Father and being subject to the Father so that God may be all in all. That will be the situation in the universe. But before it's the situation in the universe, it needs to be the situation with us. The triune God has now become my all. How wonderful. How glorious. This gift divine we never can exhaust. So God desires that you, okay, you, would gain him in full as life. He would like to give himself to you. That you would gain him as life, as the life supply, and as everything to your being. Then the verse references are from 1 John 5, 11, and 12. This is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. Do you have the Son? Then you have the life. 1 John 1.5, I appreciate the dear young sister this morning coming to read that verse plus the following verse. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Wouldn't you like to be a light being permeated with the shining God? Chapter 4, verse 16. God is love. So here we have these three attributes. Life, light, and love. And the desire of God's heart is that we would gain him in full. You would be saturated. Just saturated with the divine life. And you would become light itself, as Paul said in Ephesians 5, once you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. When we become God in life and nature, we become life, we become light, and we become love. When you become love, how can you not love your wife? The most important person in your life the dearest and most precious person in your life, the ultimate human relationship, the marriage relationship, you're becoming a love man by being a God man, the first recipient, the first beneficiary of your God as love constituted being should be her. And you just live God by living Christ. You don't try to love, you're not conscious of, wow, I'm, I'm really loving right now. But you just enjoy the Lord, and this is what He is. Wherever you are in your human life, at your job, at school, 
Some of us are very good at choosing the wrong line. Did anyone else have that gift? You've heard me illustrate about express lines with 15 items. Have you ever counted the items in someone else's basket? I had someone count the items in my basket. I felt like telling him, you got a problem <laughs> with my basket? Well, that would have been the good man at best speaking. The God man wouldn't care to vindicate himself. Do you want to accuse me of criminal activity, of sneaking into the express lane with 16 items? Go ahead, accuse me. I'm just one happy God man. <laughs> Living to him with exactly 15 items because these four that you're counting as four are one cluster of a four-pack of yogurts. <laughs> okay, two. God wants us to be God men. God wants. God wants. He wants us to be God men. Living a God man life. You have to be, then you live. Which is God and man living together as one person. Now here are four young brothers. You are not too young to live this kind of life. The Lord Jesus was a young man. He lived the God-man life. He knows what it's like to be a teenager and to be a 20-something. He knows what it's like not to be popular, not to be invited. He knows how to be in a family. He can live in you. You're not too young. You don't have to wait decades. It's for you right now. And you have the faith to believe it. I know you have the faith to believe it. It's going to happen. You're going to live God. But you'll be a normal kid. You don't have to dress the way I dress. They'll think you're really a strange person. You don't go to school like this. You wear what kids wear as long as you avoid the extremes. And you're a normal teenager. But not a typical teenager. You're a God-man teenager. The Lord's recovery is to recover this kind of God-man life. So this is an item at the center of the recovery. The God-man life is a life fully dignified with the highest standard of human virtues expressing the most excellent divine attributes. You're not stuffy, but you're dignified. Even if the enemy is at close range, you don't lose your dignity. You don't become a victim of your fear and anxiety. There's still composure there. And dignity there in the midst of an evil situation. 
than the human virtues express the most excellent divine attributes. So you are kind towards someone. But in your kindness is the kindness of God. That's going to touch people. You are patient there. Your patience is Christ. You're tender there. You're approachable there. As a human. But in those virtues, God's attributes are expressed. And you're not even aware of it. Because you're not conscious of yourself. This is the life of Jesus living again on the earth in his divinely enriched humanity. That's why I love to read Acts 26 and 27. You know, Paul Paul is on the boat in the storm lasting two weeks. They didn't know whether it was day or night. They're throwing stuff over. They're all panicking. Eventually he comes on the desk, on the deck. He said, cheer up, cheer up. The God whom I serve and to whom I belong sent his angel to tell me, we're all going to be okay. We're going to lose the ship. Okay, we're going to lose the ship, but no one will die. As long as, you know, you do what I tell you to do. And then he said, you haven't eaten for a long time. He takes bread and he breaks it openly and gives thanks. In the middle of the storm, this is Jesus living again. And the boat ran aground and those who could swim, swam. Do I have my tenses right? Those who couldn't grabbed some fixture or wooden part of the boat. They all got to shore. They're all wet. They're all cold, including... Paul. So what does he do? They got a fire there. He's gathering sticks. You know, God men, they do stuff like gathering sticks. They don't say, I'm, I'm a God man. I'm a king. I'm reigning in life. Let the peons gather the sticks. I brought you through the whole storm. Let, let me sit on the stump. We'll take that as my throne and I'll direct you what to do. This is ugly. And while he's gathering sticks, a snake bites him on the hand. And it's hanging on his hand. Now, I illustrated this before, but I'll give you the short version. Paul was not in self-pity. He didn't say, why does everything happen to me? i just been shipwrecked, and now I have a snake hanging from my hand. And neither did he panic. He didn't say, a snake, a snake. I've been bitten by a snake. Neither did he make a display. He didn't say, okay, don't worry. Everything's cool. I'm an apostle. I do signs and wonders. Watch this. I will twirl the snake around. And dash it to the ground and crush its head. I am really a mighty one. And you've got these natives, 
that are watching, and they say, he must be a murderer. And justice allowed him to escape, but now he got his dues. So they concluded, this man, this snake-bitten man, is a murderer. So Paul just shakes off the snake. Then they changed their minds and said, no, we think he's a god. <laughs> well, godmen don't live by opinion polls. If I had my choice of being accused of being a criminal or being called a god, I think it's better that you accuse me of being a criminal. Sometimes it's harder to take human appreciation. It's a unique temptation. But Paul was unmoved. He didn't say, now what were you natives? What, what were you calling me a little while ago? You, you, what was that again? Do you want to repeat that? He didn't have a chip on his shoulder. He didn't use his apostolic authority to nuke these natives. He was unfazed by their opinion of him because he was Jesus living again. And you know, this wasn't his first shipwreck. He had shipwreck 101, shipwreck 201. I don't know what this was. But read in 2 Corinthians. He said, a day and a night I spent in the deep. How about that? I take it was the Mediterranean, floating in the Mediterranean for about 24 hours. I don't know if there are sharks there. So, the Lord put him in that situation. Luke is there, the writer of Acts watching this, seeing Jesus living again in a storm, in a shipwreck, when you're cold and soaked on an island. And Paul found out that the father of Publius was ill with dysentery. And Paul went and laid hands on him and healed him. And many other sick ones came and he took care of them. And they had such a testimony that when they left on another ship, the natives came and gave them many provisions for their journey. Beautiful picture of Jesus living again. I would like to prophesy over you based upon the word. Jesus will live again, this time in you. Amen. Yes, in you. Why not you? What is there about you that makes it impossible for Christ to live in you? Are you an impossible case? Okay, there are some impossible cases, humanly. But not with God. God's going to get you in a most delightful way, and then he'll live in you. Two, this is the life of the wonderful, excellent, and mysterious God-man who lived in the Gospels, continuing to live through the many members of his body. 
That's what the body of Christ is. It's the organism for Christ to live again through all of us. This is the life of being a living witness of the incarnated, crucified, resurrected, and God-exalted Christ. The life itself is the witness. Okay, three, a God-man is a believer in Christ who is regenerated and transformed to be one with God, taking God as his life, his person, and his everything. The God-man life is the life lived out by the believers who have been regenerated to become God-men, not by the life of their old man, but by the divine life of their new man. So now you have the divine life in you. The Lord will disciple you. He will teach you. He will train you not to live by your natural human life. He will help you discern the difference between your natural human life and the divine life. And by the sense of life and by the sense of the Spirit within you, He will let you know when you're living the divine life or when you're living yourself. And you'll you're going to learn how to drive a car by the divine life. Five, the God-man life is a life of being conformed through the death of Christ by the power of his resurrection and a life of living and magnifying Christ by the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ. But we cannot go into detail, but eventually we'll be willing to just be dough in the mold of Christ's death, one with him. By the power of his resurrection, then we will live him and magnify him, not by self-effort, but by the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I was thankful for the dear sister giving us a testimony of touching life abundantly. We are awaiting testimonies from simple, ordinary saints of how they experienced the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So on one hand, you have the power of resurrection, on the other, the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. By this power and this supply, you are conformed to the death of Christ. You enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. And this gives him the way to live again in you. And it's altogether sweet and fragrant. Next, the God-man life is a life of overcoming the self, the flesh, and the involvements of the flesh, sin, Satan, and the world. We cannot overcome this by our natural human life. But by the God-man life, we overcome that. The God-man life is a life of overcoming 
religion, culture, and the tide and amusements of this age. Maybe when the rapture comes, some of you will be online. You know, two brothers were online. One was taken <laughs> and one was left. Well, this is a whole new area for us to learn. And some of us had to learn as we learn most things the hard way. To be online as a God man. Because that computer opens a multi-dimensional universe. You can go anywhere, be anything, touch anything. And there's no turning back the culture. Who knows what will be the size of our PDAs in 20 years? What kind of phones we will have? Maybe the whole earth will be a hot spot. And so this will be the world in which we live. And that will be the world in which you must overcome. So overcomers are God-men living a God-man life. The God-man life is a life of reigning as kings. By the reigning life of Christ to conquer everything contrary to God and be the overcomers of the Lord in this age. Now, Roman numeral 9 and points A and B with the subpoints are about the Godman life viewed from the angle of entering within the veil and going outside the camp. I would like uh, not to touch this, uh, not to go in that direction. I don't think I'll pick it up tomorrow. I would just ask you to read this when you have time. Let's just stay with the matter that we are at now. Then I can give my closing word. And there will be a good 25 minutes for the God-man to speak in faith. You notice in points 6, 7, and 8, we have overcoming the self, the flesh, the involvements of the flesh, overcoming religion, culture, and the time. And being overcomers in this age. It's obvious that we need to over overcome the world in its evil aspect. And overcome sin and the flesh and self and Satan. We have to also overcome religion. In Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord spoke to the churches that were in the process of becoming religious. And he called for overcomers. And we need to overcome the tide and amusements of this age. Uh, some of us that are older, we just are not interested in certain of the playthings that are important to you. And we are not practicing asceticism here denying every enjoyable thing. And we're not saying you cannot have any fun. 
But if you live a God-man life, you will reign over your mouse. You will reign in life over your mouse. Are you going to be ruled by a mouse? God-men rule over mice. Now, there are some older saints who think we're talking about little animals with tails. And who knows what else? This is an area of learning to be one spirit with the Lord. But the area that could slip our attention is culture. When a child grows up, a child has to be trained according to the culture in which the family is living. Otherwise, the child is a beast. But do you want to end up, I realize not too many of us are in this category, of being a refined, highly cultured person. Oh, you know how to arrange the table. I once went to one of these dinners, so many forks and spoons and stuff, and I ate my whole meal with my salad fork. <laughs> I didn't know any better. I'm blue collar. I'm from Motown. Okay, I'm from Motown. I'm from Motor City. Went to Princeton for dinner. You have to wear a coat and tie. Never heard of such a thing, but the rule was suit, coat, and tie. They said nothing about pants. <laughs> so, suit and tie on top, Levi 501s on the bottom. <laughs> and they let me in. Oh, to learn the difference between your culture, which is woven into your being, and Christ himself. But eventually, the Lord will help you discern. Not to live culture, religion, mere ethics, mere morality, but to live the God-man as the Spirit in you. Now, to give a little closing word, to try to bring this together and pull everything into range for where we are right now. Please don't make up your mind. Okay, from now on, that's it. I will live a God-man life from now on. Soon as this meeting is over. I predict you will fail by the time you get from here to the elevator. <laughs> that, that is Romans 7 in another form. I will, I will. I, I, because your whole concept is you're going to try to be like this. And that's the whole point. You are doing it. So I would just leave you with three things that are within your grasp. Related to the God-man living. The first is to love the Lord. More and more and more than ever. If you trace the love in Song of Songs, 
It motivates the seeker to go on and on and on till she's absolutely one with her beloved, becomes his duplication, the Shulamite. Paul could live as one person with Christ because of this sense of love. He loved me. And perhaps some of us here need a fresh personal assurance of the Lord's love for you. It's easy to say, God so loved the world. He loves the world. We can hide behind the generality. Or Christ loved the church. But there's a time to echo Paul's word. He loved me. Me, you, personally. Unless there's the element of love, unless we're constrained by the love of Christ. Didn't Paul say that? He's the pattern. The love of Christ constrains us. I have to live to him. I'm constrained by love. Don't let it become a duty, something you try to do. Let it be an expression of your love for the Lord. Lord, I love you. I love you. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Brothers, be a woman with the Lord. I know it's a little awkward at first. Eventually you'll get used to it. Lord, embrace me. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Lord, I love you. I love you, Lord Jesus. I would be one with you. I would be mingled with you. I would open my whole being to you out of love. I give you the preeminence. I give you the first place. I open to you. I experience you. I am one with you. I appreciate you. I focus my being on you. I love you, Lord. I love you with the first love and the best love. I love you more tonight than I've ever loved you in my whole life. I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you, God-man Jesus. You are the truth. You're the divine reality. I love you. You are life itself. I love you, life. You are light. I love you, light. Praise light. Just love him. And this love, it's as strong as death. It's powerful. It will motivate you. It will carry you on. It will carry you away. It will make you happily willing to be one with him. Happy to be in the fellowship of his sufferings because you love him. Okay, the second. Believe in him. Paul said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith. The faith of the Son of God. Faith means you are not and you cannot. But faith means God is and God can. Faith joins you to the Lord. So faith and love together join you to the Lord in your actual situation. Just love him. Believe into him. 
even by a little faith. You don't have to be a hero. But we all have some amount of faith in us. Just believe. Lord, I say in faith, I live to you. Like Paul says in Romans 14, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Whether we live, we live to the Lord. Or whether we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. Lord, I live to you. I will live you. I'm a God-man. I will live the life of a God-man by faith. Then my third point and the last point in this concluding word to this message is exercise your spirit to be one spirit with the Lord. And this implies denying yourself. Exercise your spirit. Don't wait for the mood to change. Don't wait for inspiration. Don't wait for your feeling to change. Don't wait for the environment to change. Exercise your spirit. Do you know that you have a spirit? Do you know that the Lord is with your spirit? Exercise your spirit to be one spirit with the Lord. Now surely you can love him. You love because he first loved you. Surely you can believe in him because he is the author and perfecter of your faith. And surely, now as we end, you can exercise your spirit to pray and you can exercise your spirit to come to the mic and to learn to speak as a God-man. Okay, We're all learning. If you had the opportunity to hear the precious message given by Brother Andrew Yu in the summer training on the God-man living. Uh, That's a wonderful word our brother gave. We're all learning here. We're all the same. We all have the flesh. We all have the self. We all have the natural life. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all this. We're all that. But the good news is We all have the life-giving spirit in our spirit. Let us love him, let us believe in him, and let us exercise our spirit to be one with him. As you are one with him, you will have a sense of how he's living. You will speak him, you will express him, you will magnify him, you will flow him, you will minister to him. This is our God-ordained destiny to live a God-man life because we're in the Lord's recovery, learning to live such a life. So let's exercise to pray and then exercise to speak. Okay, let's go.